Hey there, welcome to the Theology Of podcast. I'm Benjamin. And I'm Riker. And we're two college students who love studying scripture and having meaningful biblical conversations. When we think about theology, most of our thoughts probably stay within the four walls of the church. But in doing so, we're really limiting our understanding of God's infinite nature. And so each episode, we'll be tackling an everyday, secular-seeming topic and discussing what the faith has to say about it both conceptually and practically. So thanks so much for joining us. Make sure to buckle up, keep your hands and feet inside the proverbial vehicle at all times, and enjoy the ride. Let's go. Welcome back, everybody, to the second part of our conversation about food. I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it and your own thoughts about the theology of food, because it's just such an interesting idea. When I was first coming up with these different ideas of the theology of last year and thinking about how theology related to every part of life, this was one of the first ones that started this bunny trail. Yeah. So it's near and dear to our hearts, and it's just been fun. Yeah, it is a really fun topic. Last episode, we left you with a little bit of a cliffhanger talking about the connection between food and community. And we see that in the Old Testament through the Israelites and their relationship with food. But as we're going to be focusing on this episode, it also connects with Jesus, with the church, and also with the new heavens and the new earth to come. Yeah. But to springboard off of, here's another Tim Chester quote that talks about this idea of food and community. Many people love the idea of the church as a community. But when we eat together, we encounter not some theoretical community, but real people with all their problems and quirks. The meal table is an opportunity to give up our proud ideals by which we judge others and accept in their place the real community created by the cross of Christ with all its brokenness. It's easy to love people in some abstract sense and preach the virtues of love, but we're called to love the real individuals sitting around the table. Yeah. Yeah, let's just let that simmer a little bit. Alrighty. Yeah, it's incredible to think about how tied together the ideas of food and community are. And it's funny that these are the two episodes so far that we've had to make into two-part episodes Hmm. because they are so thorough, they're so dense, there's so much within them that we have to try and tackle as humans of how does God really speak into these big things in our life. And those are probably the two biggest things that we've encountered so far is the idea of community and that you engage with community every single day, um, whether it be in a workplace, in a school place, in a church place, wherever, Um, but also with food and how we ingest food every day. And it's what keeps us moving and going. So yeah, it's really cool to think about just how connected both of these ideas are and how we can look towards one and get the other and uh, and how one is naturally built into the other as well. Yeah, that was really well said. Next up, we are going to go back into scripture and talk about food 
in its relationship with Jesus. So, Benjamin, do you want to start us off with that? Yeah, let's kick it off with actually a quoting of scripture before Jesus began his public ministry. And this is actually in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 4. And he actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. Um, and he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so he's making a distinction here to, to kind of kick us off and showing the difference between earthly food and earthly pleasures and, and temptations of the flesh, but also the idea of spiritual food and spiritual hunger. And that while Jesus, while on earth, is feeling the hurt of his earthly body and the hunger of his earthly body, and Satan is trying to get him to fall into that trap. But Jesus knows that the spiritual food that he is getting from the Father is so much greater. Right, because we still do need earthly food. Right. But Jesus is reminding us that that's only a foretaste of the spiritual sustenance that we need from God as well. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then jumping into the start of his public ministry, we have this incredible story in John 2 about the miracle at the wedding in Cana. And it's this story of a celebration of a marriage and Jesus takes the water and turns it into wine and gives us, again, this beautiful connection between God's character and his lavishness and joy and love for us and the goodness of food. Yeah, that story is so much deeper than we ever think to give it credit for. Mm. Um, it has a lot more depth and I kind of compare this to what we were talking about last episode with the feast. And this is a really great picture, just kind of interwoven into Jesus' ministry of what the final feast is to be like. And uh, this, again, lavish food and lots of, of, of food and drink for the guests. And it's just a big banquet and a really good picture of community as well, which is kind of cool. But moving on, yeah, into Luke 15, verse 2 just 15 in general is is talking about the parables, but uh, it starts off with a very interesting passage saying, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach, but this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people and even eating with them. So what? Jesus eats with sinners? Ooh. Oh man, yeah. That's a... Uh, Another perfect example of this community that we're kind of hinting at last episode is that Jesus was engaging with the people who were outcast by every other religious group around town, and he was sharing a meal with them. And how much more powerful was that, that he was interacting with them and, and doing life with them over food? Hmm. Yeah. And while you're reading that passage, something that's really interesting to note is that they said that not only was he associating himself with the sinners and the tax collectors, but he was even eating with them. Right, yeah. Which to our own standards, that might not seem like a big jump, but to the Jews, especially to the Pharisees, that's such a big deal because mm, yeah. their food and meal etiquette was so interwoven with their theology because of the Old Testament laws that we talked about last episode of food and cleanliness and all of this, that 
even something as simple as having a meal can have huge theological implications. Yeah. This goes into just Jesus's practices with eating with other people as well, as we see actually just a chapter earlier in Luke that it begins with one Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner in the home of a leader of the Pharisees and the people were watching him closely. And so all eyes are on this guy who claims to be the Messiah, right? And this, again, has huge theological implications that food was interwoven with the Jewish theology. And so the fact that Jesus is eating with the greatest of these in their eyes and the least of these is is just so incredible. Which also shows his grace, right? Because right. he ate with everybody. It's not like he excluded those who excluded others. Right. But he chose to embrace everybody through his eating habits. Yeah. Such a great picture. Mm-hmm. Jumping into some of the parables of Jesus about food, one of the biggest ones in Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son, mm, where yep. you have this son who squanders his father's inheritance, realizes his mistake, comes back, and is welcomed with a lavish feast, something that was completely undeserved and yet shows the grace and the love of the Father. And once again, we see this connection between grace and salvation and these really important themes of the Christian faith with a meal. Yeah, that is that is such a great story. Um, moving right along into John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So, Again, comparing and also making a distinction between the earthly food and the heavenly food and that Jesus is, as he talks about later in the Last Supper, which we'll talk about in just a second, he is giving us his body, giving us his blood. Um, he is the bread of life. He is our spiritual and our eternal food forever. Right. And like you mentioned last episode, you have this connection between Jesus and the living water, and also mm -hmm. the bread of life. Um, right. So they're both connected to his identity. Yeah. Moving right along, we have Luke 7, verse 34, where Jesus' entire ministry is summed up in the phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking which is mm. not a passage that you hear about a lot. No. But it does a really good job of connecting all of these other stories and showing how meals are such a huge part of Jesus's ministry. Yeah, something you forget about a lot. Uh, moving into Mark 7, verses 14 through 23. This is kind of a follow-up to what we were talking about last episode with Jewish tradition and Jewish custom. Um, remember the one exception that we had coming out of the garden was no blood, if you remember that. But uh, looking now at Mark 7, verse 14 through 23, uh, Jesus gives this statement to the crowd and he says, All of you listen and try to understand. It is not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled but what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. Don't you understand either? 
he asked. Can't you see that the food that you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but it only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. By saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it is what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So Jesus is kind of uh, putting that second part on the story in Genesis where he's declaring all foods clean and getting rid of that exception that we brought into the story of Genesis. Yeah, it's cool to see that connection. Lastly, we have Matthew 22, where it's another parable about the wedding banquet, where you have this host who invites all these people, but they come up with all these excuses. And so he instead has his servants find anyone that they can and invite them into this big feast, which again, points back to Isaiah's prophecies of this future feast to come and points forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah. So we see all these all these really cool connections that start to take place when we look at all of these passages. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So now let's look at some of those key themes that we find in these passages. The first of which we've already mentioned a little bit, but there's this theme that we find in scripture that food is meant to be a memorial of our dependence on God. John Kessler articulates this by saying, the need for food is both immediate and recurring. It is a need that, once it is met, returns every single day. Even if I ate yesterday, I will be hungry again today. Yeah. And so the way that God designed it, our cyclical need for food constantly shows us that we aren't self-sufficient on our own, Mm, that we need something outside of ourselves to continue to sustain us and allow us to function at our highest capacity. Yeah. Take that quote in the context of the bread of life verse that we just read, Mm -hmm. where Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. And when you go hungry, come seeking me. If we think about our need for food as our need for Jesus, we see that those things go hand in hand. Right. You have this grace that is demonstrated and it's not a contribution, right? We don't contribute to grace, but instead it's something that's consumed, right? Given from God to us. And that's just such a beautiful picture of that theological concept. Yeah. And so I think we can use that idea in shaping the way that we pray for meals because I don't know about you guys or you, Benjamin, but a lot of times it can be easy to say really boring prayers before meals, right? Sure. Saying the exact yeah. same thing 
dear Lord, thank you for this food. May it bless our bodies, even though it's a big old bag of Cheetos. Um, <laughs> somehow make this nourish us. Amen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's so much potential that's lost in that moment to stop and recognize our need for God that's demonstrated in the food in front of us to stop and think about the taste and the nourishment that God has designed food in such a manner that displays his grace Yeah, to stop and recognize the people around us and the community that is developed around the table. Yeah, no, that's, that's super great. Another topic that I think we can bring up along the same line and the same vein as food is, is fasting and something that Jesus did often, and many religious upbringings make that a, a weekly or daily part of their walk with God. And um, I think that as Christians, it's something that we should totally do as well. Mm-hmm. But maybe looking at the the theological implications behind it, and maybe more or less how it relates to this conversation that we're having right now, understanding that the purpose of fasting is to give up one thing to devote more of your time to another. And we've talked about this a little bit. I think it was in technology or one of those episodes, something like that, but giving up one thing in order to make more time for another. And within that, there is an idea of how much you depend on this one thing and it recenters uh, the one thing that you're giving up, you're, you're depending on that so much, but it recenters your view of the world when you are longing for that one thing you use that time and that energy and that hunger if you will for pursuing god and so in the grand scheme of everything that we've been talking about where does fasting fit in where is that somewhere that we can apply in our daily practices of eating food yeah i think you're exactly right it connects with the purpose of food itself that we just talked about where food points us to our dependence on God. And so specifically fasting in relation to food, taking away that reminds us all the more of our dependence on God. Right. And our lack of self-sustainability. And I think sometimes we in the church can have a faulty view of fasting as some elite, super spiritual discipline that only the best Christians do. Or it's just something that's archaic and that we just don't do at all. Yeah. But I think both of those really miss the value of fasting. And I think it's an area that the church could learn a lot from, especially in a consumeristic culture. Yeah, absolutely. And even without having to delve into the food route, fasting from anything, like we talked about social media, again, I think it was in episode two, but fasting from those things to devote more of your time to God, that should be something that the church is preaching Mm -hmm. and should be something that we are doing in our daily lives to get rid of the things of this earth. Like we were saying, make that distinction between earthly pleasures and heavenly pleasures and make the distinction between earthly food and heavenly food and, and spiritual food. And where is God calling us to eat that spiritual food that we just don't have time for in a regular day. So let's get rid of some of the earthly food to make time for the the food that God is wanting us to eat. Hmm. Yeah. So jumping right back into the New Testament, 
we encounter something that we brought up earlier, but um, that is worth talking about, and that is Jesus' Last Supper. And uh, yeah, where where do we go in this big topic? Because this could be taken a bunch of different ways. Right. Yeah, you have all of these connections to the Passover and other Old Testament passages, and the Last Supper takes all of those themes and twists it in this really beautiful way to show mm-hmm. how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of our hunger, right? Our hunger right. is a signpost that points directly towards him. And it's really beautiful to see the design behind the Last Supper and how the elements aren't just meaningless, right? But they have rich purpose. For example, when you think about bread and wine, both of them require crushing, right? You have to Hmm. crush the grains to make flour to prepare bread, and you have to crush grapes in order to get wine. And yet, Hmm. through the crushing, you have this redemption-type process that goes on to make then something that's good again. Um, So you have this mini symbol of death and resurrection within the meal itself. That is really cool. Yeah, I definitely had not thought about that before. That's super cool. which I think is a great bridge for us to cross into our final part of our biblical survey of the theology of food and and, uh, looking at where food has a place in the redemption of the creation. And so looking at more of the church age and talking about a couple of the passages within that, uh, we'll flip over to Acts and look at chapter 2, Verse 46, where talking about the believers and them forming a community, which goes back to what we were just talking about with food and community. It says in verse 46, they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. Such a great picture, right? After Mm -hmm. Jesus' death and resurrection, the believers gathering together in their homes gathering together at the temple, really forming a community. That's what the title of my section of this part of my Bible is called. It's called The Believers Form a Community. Hmm. And uh, it's a it's a great embodiment of that as they sit down and eat meals together and, and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that practice itself is called the love feast. Yeah. Which, again, is connecting these biblical themes with feasting and eating. Yeah. Further on in Acts, you have the story of Peter getting a vision about all foods being clean and the invitation of the Gentiles into the church, looking specifically at Acts 10. But once again, in this really dramatic moment in the church's history, you have food taking center stage, acting as a way to communicate this new message. Mm. Yeah. 
Moving right along into Paul's letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 31, um, he concludes this part of his letter with, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God, which again, just sums everything that we're trying to talk about in this podcast, in this specific episode, um, and in, in this biblical survey part four sums it up so perfectly um, that we're, we're trying to do all of this for the glory of God. And uh, Paul noticed that and pointed that out to his Corinthians as he saw them starting to gather in their homes and, and start to form communities and how he wanted them to glorify God in the little things. Yeah, we should definitely use that to shape our own understanding of our meals in our community as believers. Right. All right, now we've finally come to it, the big grand finale of the theology of food found in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is such an important passage that I'm just going to read through it. Starting in verse 6, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then it goes on to talk about John worshiping the angel, but the angel saying that he's a fellow servant, but you have this idea of the marriage supper of the lamb. And we have to tread a little bit carefully talking about heaven and the way it's going to look like, obviously. Right. We can't fully know. But when we think back to Jesus's resurrection, when he comes back to the disciples, he eats a meal with them in the end of the gospel of John. Right. So even in his redeemed body, he was able to eat which would suggest that when we talk about the marriage supper of the lamb, it's not just a spiritual experience, but there's also the potential of there really being a gigantic table where all the believers can finally gather and eat a beautiful meal with one another, which is just such a cool, exciting picture to get to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. I I love reading that, hearing that, hearing you speak that. It's just such a such a cool promise. I, lo- I love being able to, to think about that. Yeah. And the way that one of my friends put it that really captured the beauty of it in my mind was when he imagines this passage, he thinks of this giant table and you have people that stand up and give a toast to the lamb and they talk about the good things that Christ has done and the way that he was worshiped throughout their life. And everyone says, hear, hear. And this just happens 
one after the other after the other. And you have all of these beautiful foods that are being passed around, like this endless train. And yeah, it's just such, such a cool picture of what we have to look forward to. So as we wind this two-part series down and kind of come to the conclusion of the theology of food, what do we have in our back pocket to make this tangible? What do we have to, to be able to apply this to our own lives? Right. I think one of the biggest applications that we can take from all of this is connecting food with the Great Commission that hmm. God's given us all. One last time, talking about Tim Chester's book, he says in it, people often complain that they lack time for mission, but we all have to eat three meals a day, seven days a week. That's 21 opportunities for mission and community without adding anything to your schedule. Mm, yeah, I love that. That's so cool. And I had read this book earlier in the summer. Mm-hmm. And so when I came across it again in researching for this episode, it just reminded me of that beautiful truth. And it's cool because I've noticed in my own life a shift started to take place where I see meals as an opportunity to have fellowship mm. and um, pour into other believers and unbelievers. And yeah, I think... If you were to try to make all these things not just theoretical, but practical, this is a really good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And also just seeing that food and like we talked about in the first episode and, and just the diversity of food and how vast an amount of combinations for different foods and spices and herbs and seasonings that we have here on earth and really just ascribing that to the image of God and understanding that he has made us all so different and that we get to partake in all of these things that he's created for us, that food is really meant to give us a taste of God's goodness um, displayed through both creation and the redemption. And so just all of the biblical survey that we've been taking for the past couple of episodes and just putting that all together and seeing how food really works to provide us a picture of the redemption of humanity and how all will come to the table once again in the renewed heavens and earth. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that specifically and are looking for resources to get you started in that direction, again, I mentioned it a lot of times in this episode, but the book A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester is a really, really good place to start in the theology of food. Benjamin, do you have any recommendations of resources on this topic? Uh, I was primarily reading an article series on the Australian Gospel Coalition um, organization website, and it was a, a series called Advent the feast or food and eating. 
And uh, it it had a lot of really great insights and, and nuggets of knowledge as well as ties to scripture. So definitely recommend that. And I'll link that in the show notes. Sweet. And also, because this is such a special episode talking about food, if you guys have any recipes that you want to send to us, we would love that. You can yes. throw that into an email, send it to the theology of at outlook.com and if you send us an email of a recipe we will send you one back heck yeah we will so just just gonna put that out there (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for listening to this two-part series on the theology of food we want to thank all of our listeners so far who have made it all the way to episode 10 we made it we are two-thirds of the way through season one of the Theology of Podcast. Super excited about that and super excited for the remaining five episodes that we have in this season. So stay tuned for all of those. Again, as Riker said, check out the show notes. Check out our social media pages on Instagram.com slash the theology of and Facebook.com slash the theology of, as well as send us an email at the theology of at outlook.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our music is provided to us by our good friend and brother, Luke Hall, and we're super thankful for how he's supporting us in this podcast. Feel free to check him out on SoundCloud and on Spotify in the links in the show notes. Other than that, we're super excited to be diving into the topic of celebration for episode 11 and the theology of celebration. So make sure stay tuned for next Wednesday morning as we release that around 9 a.m. And uh, thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.